Now, I don't often uh, make any sort of elaborate introduction uh, to a text before I read it, and I'm not going to make an elaborate introduction uh, before reading this text, but I am going to say a few things about it. First, uh, there is simply no, there's no other way to say it except to say it this way. The text that we are about to read is utterly appalling. And if you are reading through the Bible in the year with our program, uh, and you've read Judges 19, then you know that already. Uh, one of the things that we can do uh, very easily as believers is we can create uh, a cotton candy Bible simply by not reading it. Uh, and that's what most people do, uh, frankly. Most people simply don't read the entire Bible. They don't. They, they pick and choose their sections, usually Psalms and a bit of the New Testament. And if you do that, provided you don't read with any attention a lot of what Jesus says or Revelation, uh, and you just sort of pick and choose your Psalms for the joyful ones, you can get a completely skewed view of what the Bible actually contains. And for a lot of people, they do, that in, they do that for a variety of reasons. Sometimes I believe it's almost intentional. But if you're actually reading through the Bible in our program, then you've read Judges 19. And the question is, what do you begin to do with a text like this? Well, how, do you, how do you handle this? What does this mean in terms of being the Word of God? So I'm going to read it. Uh, I will say, and I think this is overdone today, you know, with with everything getting a trigger warning. But this is one of those few times where it may be worthwhile to say that uh, this text deals with uh, what is almost unspeakable um, sexual violence. And so just to be aware uh, as we go. Judges 19, uh, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with them three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with somebody to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way. But, unwilling to stay another night... The man left and went to Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jabus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. 
We will go on to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place, uh, sorry, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the, the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So they took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way... There lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into twelve parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, Such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine. We must do something. So speak up. It's impossible to uh, begin to understand... What's going on in this text, maybe in some ways at all, but certainly apart from understanding the structure of the book of Judges as a whole, that is utterly essential to being able to sort out anything that's going on when you get to the end of the book. So, if you start in Judges chapter 1, and you can, you can just turn there quickly, we're not going to go through the whole book really. But there are a couple of verses that may be worth seeing. So 
Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The Lord, I have given the land into their hands. He is the one who is sovereign over the land. That's very important. But the Israelites are not able to drive out the people. So if you look at verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. So what you have is Joshua, or Moses and Joshua, both telling the people, go in and take over the land. But at the beginning of Judges, you find out they're not doing that. In fact, verse 29 says, Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezir, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. So instead of driving them out... The Canaanites live among the people. But then in verse 32, you read this. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. So in the first instance, it's the Israelites and the Canaanites are living among them. The Israelites in the dominant position. Here, it's the opposite. Here, it's the Asherites are not in the dominant position. They're living among the Canaanites. And then verse 34. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. So here, very clearly, it's not the tribe of Dan that's dominant, it's the Canaanites. So what you have at the very beginning of the book of Judges is you have this failure of Israel to actually obey the Lord and do what they were told to do. Uh, Chapter 2 explains this, chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up uh, from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. That's why Israel is not having success. They have, they have capitulated already to pagan worship. They have already gone in, and rather than ridding the land of the uh, the idols, they have decided to remain, sort of syncretistically, allowing this worship to go on. And remember, we had said a few weeks ago that one of the realities of the people who are living in Canaan is that their religions, uh, their religious practices, involved all kinds of terrible things, some of which included sexual violence, uh, some of which included literally sacrificing their infants to their gods. They, they would put their children to death sometimes as part of their religious worship. So this was not just merely a matter of being pluralistic, you know, you will all just believe different things and it's okay. The people who held to these religions were, were literally executing children to their gods. So God said, go in, this is intolerable, this has to stop, you need to go into this land and end these practices, don't be like them. And at the very beginning of Judges, what we're told is that the people are failing to be unlike the nations around them. They they are worshipping, or they are allowing the same type of worship that's so abhorrent to God. Now this sets up cycles in the book. Judges is an extremely cyclical book, so that the children of Israel will be told, do evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's usually not stated exactly what they've done, but it's often running in terms of disobedience and idolatry. So the children of Israel do evil in the eyes of the Lord. So then God gives them over to foreign powers, so they're oppressed for a time. 
during their oppression, the cycle goes, they cry out to God for mercy. In response, God will raise up a deliverer or a judge. Now, when we think of judge, we tend to think of uh, you know, someone sitting on the bench adjudicating court cases. There was a little bit of that going on, but the judges are really more... Like, if you read the book, you might wonder, like, when were they ever listening to cases? You know, it doesn't really seem that anyone's ever listening to prosecutors or defense attorneys. Uh, all they're doing is going to war. And so it's probably... Uh, you can almost translate this in some ways as you know, the Lord raises up a deliverer. Uh, or even, you know, a, a warlord in some cases. Uh, the Lord will raise up someone who will deliver them from their enemies. This judge is empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. It doesn't mean they're godly. Most of them aren't. But it means that God uses them or empowers them for a purpose, that is to bring liberation to his people. After the time of the judge... The Israel were usually told is given a period of rest or peace for a certain period of time, and then the cycle continues again. In fact, as you track through the book, if you read it carefully, one of the things that you notice is that the judges get worse and worse and worse as time goes on, and the period of peace gets smaller and smaller as time goes on. Okay? So what you're being shown is, as the book develops, especially you sort of hit the middle, at the, sorry, the first bit... The judges are clearly better morally than others. You, you get into Gideon and, and, and start moving on, and, and all of a sudden you can't really tell morally is how, what really makes this judge any better than, than the, the foreign powers. And you get to the end of the book, and what you find out is that Israel is actually worse than the nations around them. The macro structure of the book is essential to see to understand the message. It can't be read in a Sunday school way of, here's a neat story or two. It's not flat that way. It's cyclical. And it's a downward degenerative spiral of morality. That's something that needs to be understood if you understand at all what's going on here by the time you get to Judges 19. So, for example, Gideon. We often like to talk about Gideon in Sunday school, and, it's, and he's a wonderful guy, and he's great. Uh, the reality is that, that Gideon, and we even will talk about putting a fleece out before the Lord, and, and you know, this is how we discern God's will and all the rest. Gideon puts out a fleece because he doesn't believe the word of God. This is actually not an example of how you're supposed to discern the will of God. It's an example of utter failure to listen to what God had said. God told him three times what he wanted him to do. And Gideon goes, oh really, well maybe I'll put out a fleece. And then God in mercy gives him that sign. And Gideon says, well maybe let's do it again. This is not a model for determining the will of God. This is a flagrant example of disobeying what God has said. Then Gideon is so brave that all he does is do what God had told him to do, but at night so that no one can see him. Later on, Gideon sets up something which becomes an idolatrous artifact in Israel. After he dies, Israel immediately does what is wrong, and his son pronounces himself a king and kills all of his own brothers. Not the enemies of God, but the perceived enemies to his kingship. This is Gideon's legacy. You then hit Jephthah, who is 
the son of a prostitute who hates his brothers and is hated by them, who goes out and gathers, the, the, the text will say, depending on what English translation uses, the text will say something like, goes up and gathers some like, rough characters or miscreants or something. What he does is he goes and he gathers a street gang. He, he gathers up this, this rabble of violent criminals. So he's actually be, almost like, you know, depending on which, well, we're, we're in Guelph, so we'll use the mafia as an example. Uh, so, you, so it's sort of like he's like the, a, a crime syndicate figurehead with all these goons around him. And his brothers say, oh, we'll, we'll make you the ruler if you, if you get you know, some liberty. Now, something else is going on here. In Judges, it's not usually all of Israel being delivered. It's usually little pockets of oppression in certain numbers of the tribes. Okay? So Jephthah and, and his hooligans go and, and, and win this battle. Before they do that, Jephthah says to God, listen, I'll, I'll sacrifice anything. The first thing that comes into my house, I'm going to sacrifice if you give us the victory. It's utterly rash promises. God has no reason to do this. The first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter. And instead of saying, it's the law of God provided, if you've made a rash vow, you can go back to God. And you can, you can substitute something in its place. Jephthah's daughter comes out, and he sacrifices her. In other words... He, his view of God is exactly the pagan view of their deities that Israel was sent in to get rid of. This is not a hero. You hit Samson, who's probably the, the stereotypical judge. Everyone who teaches Sunday school loves to talk about Samson. Why? Lots of hair and strength, right? Is, what could be better than that in terms of the flannel graph presentation? And so you know, he, he's miraculously conceived... Uh, the angel of the Lord sets him apart. He really is set apart. He is, he is a deliverer. But there's, there's a mirroring that goes on in Samson's life. His, his insatiable lust for foreign women exactly mirrors Israel's insatiable lust for foreign gods. And so what you find with Samson is that even though he's the most charismatic judge, it is four times we're told he's filled by the Spirit of the Lord. Four times more than any other judge. He's also the most pagan. So you'll remember this great story, a lion springs on him and he tears the lion apart with his bare hands. You know, I'm not sure if many of you have experienced that. I've just done that once or twice. Uh, and so he, he does that. And, and then he, the, the carcass is, is you know, there and, and he goes on his way and he comes back later and, and about a week later and, and bees have sort of made a nest and there's honey. Now he's in Nazareth set apart to the Lord from birth, which is why he can't cut his hair. The Nazarites were absolutely forbidden to ever touch a dead carcass. Ever. It's a total repudiation of his vows. And so what does he do? Well, I'm hungry. Takes out some of the honey. That is not a display of his strength. That is a display of his absolute moral failure. He cares nothing for the God to whom he has special vows and has been given special ability. He not only does that, but he gives them to his parents, but the text says, but doesn't tell them where he got the honey from. In other words, he doesn't care a bit if he defiles his parents either. He cares nothing for holiness, not for himself, not for anyone else. And you also remember the story where he, he, you know, he gets locked in the city at night, 
and, and he breaks off the, the, the bars of the gate and carries them a distance outside of the city. You, you, you'll remember that story. Everyone loves that story. And he goes, oh, look how strong he was. Yes, but why was he in the city? Why was he locked in? Well, he'd gone in to sleep with a prostitute. So his carrying the city gate is him using his strength to escape the consequences of his utter immorality. He's not a model. When he kills the Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey. The jawbone of the donkey comes from precisely what? A carcass. He should never have touched it in the first place. Do you see? The, the whole point is how God in mercy still uses this awful person who has not one, one trace of godliness in him. But yet God will still use this person for the good of his people. Now that's actually a lesson worth reflecting on. Not usually a lesson that's taught in Sunday school. Usually in Sunday school, especially say to the little boys, you know, you want to grow up, you want to be strong like Samson and Pastor Steve. It's not the lesson. You know, it is not the lesson. And of course, in the end, he ends up doing more in his death than he does in his life. Pushes the praise once more. Lord, just one more time, strength in my hands. Right? And collapses the temple. For the first time, actually doing something to rid the land of idolatry. And pagan worship even though it costs him his life. And I think it's for that, I do think that in the end, and Hebrews 11 would indicate this too, in the end there is some faith there. But, but you must not think that everything in the Old Testament, everything in this book, even for people who end up having, actually end up having repentance and faith in the end, we must not think that everything in the Bible is given as an example that's positive. So it's one of the massive mistakes we've made in teaching the Old Testament. Everyone who's in the Old Testament somehow becomes a hero, no matter what they do. It is just absolutely, utterly wrong. So why, you know, Richard Dawkins, for example, in Judges 19, can just cite Judges 19 and say, look how strange and, and, and evil the Bible is. You want to say, well, well, yes, if you're isolating this chapter as an expression of something that's good. But it's not you are supposed to feel nauseous after reading this text if you read it properly. You are. That's part of the lesson. Now, right before Judges 19, you have a transition where you move away from Judges' deliverers to Levites, chapter 17 and 18. Micah the Levite. Now, the Levites, of course, are the people who are supposed to serve in the tabernacle, they're supposed to lead the worship of God. Well, where's this guy? This guy's in a, in, in a private home, stealing from his mom. And when he's caught, he says, well, let, let, let's make an idol with the money. That's better. And so instead of leading people to God, he, he's an idolatrous thief. The Levites are beginning to lead the people away from God rather than to him. Which is why it's significant that when you hit Judges 19, it's a Levite and his concubine. 
The Levites are the ones who are supposed to lead Israel to proper religious worship. And in Judges 17, 18, and 19, what you find is the Levites are actually leading people in precisely the wrong direction, into stealing and idolatry and sexual violence. Now, what do you do when your priests are like this? Frankly, that's something that, um, that's a question that's been asked in our world in the last number of years, hasn't it been? What do you do when those who are supposed to be leading God's people towards God are guilty of these sorts of atrocities and abuses? There's nothing new under the sun. What was the problem then is appallingly a problem today. This text runs on two lines. One, the unspeakable event. And two, the reminiscence of Sodom and Gomorrah. You aren't supposed to be able to read this text thoughtfully without thinking, I've read this before. Where did I read this before? I read this before in Genesis. This is precisely Sodom and Gomorrah. But the the, the, the trick of it, or, or the, the pivot point, is this. It's not in Sodom. It's not even in Jabus. Remember, Jerusalem isn't an Israelite city until the time of David. Because the city of David is David captures it. So Jerusalem is a pagan city. We can't go to Jerusalem. There are pagans there. We can't go to Jerusalem. We will only go to a city where there are Israelites. The text makes that very clear. Why? Because presumably, in Israel, amongst the people of God, things can't happen to you that can happen to you out in the world. Apparently, you're safe there. You're not safe anywhere else, but you're safe there. We will go on. We must stay tonight in Gibeah or Ramah. We must stay in the place where there are Israelites. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? question is this. What will God do to people who are like this? Destruction and judgment. It's hard not to it's hard not to desire judgment for acts like this, isn't it? And there will be judgment that comes. But the amazing thing is that although there is judgment, there is also mercy. God is continually gracious with people. God is continually gracious with this world. Should we ever really, like, really stop and think about what goes on in a day in our world? Like, really? And I was wondering, why does God even allow this world to continue? Is there happiness? Yes. Is there joy? Yes. Is there, there's lots of good things. Yes, 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 yes. It's perspective. But the other side of the coin is that, is that, that this happens too. Why, is, why does God allow it? Why does God keep this world going? 
merciful. He's patient. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's, he's working through this world to bring about a great world where this will never happen again, where these sorts of things will, will never, ever occur. But you're not supposed to read Judges thinking, well, God keeps working with Israel because they're so great. No wonder he works with them. You're supposed to work through this thinking, my goodness, this is not a testament to Israel's goodness. This is a testimony to nothing but mercy and forgiveness. And God will keep working to transform these people. Now, the last two chapters of the book will end with a civil war. People are so appalled at what's happened here that they go marching in to destroy the ones who did this. To the point where they almost annihilate a whole tribe of Israelites. In other words, they're putting to death, they're putting to death the innocent with the guilty. It's just utter mayhem. It's, it's just an utter catastrophic bloodshed. It's not judicial. It, it's not justice. It, it, it's warfare. Civil war. And so by the time you get to the end of Judges, this is where you are. Israel is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're at civil war. That's your, that's your people. And the great cry of the book is, in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. The implication there is, if we have a king, maybe things will be better. If maybe the king would have stopped it. It's always the hope, right? If we could only get this person in power, if we could only elect this political party, if we could only do this in the economy or whatever it is, that's when things will be different. It's always external societal change. That, that's, what, that's what we hope in. External society change does nothing all through the Old Testament. Remember, we saw that when the people of Israel are brought out of, out of Egypt and they're at Sinai for a whole year. They move, and the very first thing they do is grumble and complain, just like they did right before they got to Sinai. All the covenant, all the glory, all that experience, all the law, all the tabernacle, all the priesthood, does literally nothing when it's on the outside. So now they're in the land. No different at all. You, You can change your geography. You can move to a new home. It doesn't change who you are. Maybe when we have a king... Well, we're going to get a king. Who's the first king? How did that go? Right? It's, like it's just one disaster after another. Till the end of the, the period of the monarchy, Israel is so bad that they've been vomited out of the land and they're in exile because they're worse than the pagans around them. But oh, if we just have the right guy on the throne, if we can just get the right person in Parliament Hill, everything's going to be different. It's not. It's not. Don't kid yourself. Just don't. Do you really, do you really think, really, putting a new political party in Ottawa is going to change the downward, degenerative spiral that our nation's been on for decades? Do you really think that? I don't. I just don't. Doesn't mean that politics aren't important. Doesn't mean you don't vote. Doesn't. But, but come on. The biggest political impact you could ever have would be by converting someone. So at the end of Judges, there is this foolish hope that maybe one day there will be the right king and everything will be fine. Ultimately, that will be true. Not the way they think. 
ultimately, we do need the right king. And that's Jesus. In other words, this, this whole text, the whole book, cries out for Christ. We need a real king. We need Jesus. Nothing else will do. No one else will do. We need Jesus. But we also need to do what we can in this world. I, 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 don't, I don't want to say this, but I will. Because it is, it is if we won't, who will? And because it's true. This woman is raped throughout the night and, and dies as a result of the violence. You, you do know that these things continue today. You do know that, that in this world today, there are people who have been taken and pressed into sex slavery against their will, who have been initiated through gang rape. That happens every single day. Every day. Some are children. Every day. There is still an enormous amount of misogyny, this hatred of women in our society, and certainly in many other places, although it's always easier to point the finger at other places and other cultures than it is to look at ourselves. There is a practice uh, that takes place with tens of thousands of women, usually young girls, uh, every year, which euphemistically, uh, to try to give it some veneer of, um, sort of medical sanitation, uh, is called uh, female genital circumcision. But it is not that at all. It is rightly called female genital mutilation, for that is what it is, where tens of thousands of young girls a year have their external genitalia cut off, usually without anesthetic, usually not in a sterile environment, usually not with anyone who knows anything about anatomy. This happens every single day. This is one of the reasons why, if in the past I was a little exercised about us sending money to the Philippines to try to help some of these young girls who have been forced into sex slavery, that's why. Because the church should be leading the way against these things, not following along behind with token giving and token concern when it's become trendy as a social justice issue in the rest of the world. The church needs to be leaders against these things, not followers. We absolutely must do something, anything, to be different ourselves, to set a different example, and to stop some of what is going on in the world. And so where we are not ourselves able to be in the Philippines rescuing some of these young girls and young children, 
When there are partners like the International Justice Mission who, who are well connected with, with police and government who actually can do things, uh, not only in terms of uh, rescuing girls, but also prosecuting the guilty, then we who have... <laughs> we, I'm not saying as a church, but, but if, if the church isn't just the organization, if the church is all of us, the amount of, the amount of, of money that sits in this room... That we can use, that you can use privately, that doesn't need to be funneled through the church, but things you can do individually, it's incredible. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine, I'll move off this in a moment, but I mean, it, it would just be, can you imagine if, if we actually added up all of the dollars that we all spend in a year on all of the things we spend our money on? How many, how many millions of dollars would just be seen to just go into utter trivialities and, and unnecessary luxuries when, when, when this happens every day? Well, how do you move from that to communion? Well, perhaps this way. One of the most incredible, shocking things about this text is that in the long-term perspective, God is still willing to love and to save and redeem. We tend to take that for granted because we tend to think we're just not all that bad. You know, the human race, we've got our problem people. We'll marginalize them. You know. And we have some saints. They're really good. And most of us, you know, the 80, 90 percent, we're, we're all okay. You know, not, not super saints, not devils, just, just kind of okay. And the world, you know, it's just kind of okay. And, and we kind of expect that it's God's business to just be okay with us and stuff. But sometimes when we, we need to be reminded of, of what sin actually looks like, what hatred looks like, what violence looks like, and to recognize that, that we just don't tend to see ourselves as being that bad. And maybe we've never, this is extreme. But, but to recognize that all that God knows, all that God sees, and yet God still is willing to, to, to work to redeem this world. It's more significant than we normally think. It, it's, it's a deeper love than we normally think. God will still fulfill His covenant promises. Now, at the end of Judges, as we mentioned, the people of God are completely divided. They're at civil war and they're worse than pagans. But in Christ, Christ pays the penalty for our sin... And also brings unity. So the end of Judges, there's no king. Everyone's, there, there, there's disunity. There's civil war. You can't be more dis, disunited than that. There's literal civil war. But in Christ, he brings people together. 
So that the new covenant community, the old covenant community, is totally divided in, in, in violence and blood. In the new covenant community, everyone is one. They are united together. Here, here's another uh, torturous, violent death, but it's taking place at the cross now. It's taking place with the Son of God, uh, where, where there is, in some ways, dismemberment. Where there is the shedding of blood, where there is scorn and hatred, and all the violence and animosity of the world is channeled to him. And he dies as a willing sacrifice because of love. And just one of the results is unity. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What that means is that when it comes to salvation, there is no such thing as a second-class citizen in salvation. There is no such thing as a second-class person at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't, nothing about you matters except that you are a sinner who needs a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior of all who come to Him. Not the background, not the ethnicity, not the language, not whether they can find their hotel in China. None of that matters. It just is me and Jesus, and at that stage, there is no one who is better or worse than anyone else. And so there is equality in Christ in salvation. Not Jew or Gentile. Not rich or poor. Not, not educated or uneducated. All are one in Christ Jesus. Not male or female. Not young or old. And so in communion, we remember our Lord and what He has done for us. He has made it possible for us to have a totally different story from what you get in the book of Judges. A totally different story. And it is our responsibility to make sure that we are living out a totally different story from how this book ends. Now, as a result this morning, traditionally, we have deacons uh, who help distribute the elements this morning. And I appreciate that. Uh, deacons are servants, that's what the word means. And so to have our deacons serve the church in communion, I think, is actually a beautiful illustration, just a practical way of demonstrating service. That's a good thing to do. I'm not sure we often think about that, because when we do things traditionally too often, often we just sort of, it just becomes what happens. And so the thoughtfulness behind it kind of dissipates. So we want to guard against that. Uh, it's good to have the deacons do that as a way of demonstrating service. It's good, but... However, there is nothing in the Bible that says that deacons or elders need to serve communion. There, there's nothing in the Bible about dis, uh, the distribution of elements at all. Uh, in some traditions, of course, people come to the front to receive communion from the ordained minister. I don't think that's necessary, uh, but that's what they do in some traditions. In some traditions, there's far more egalitarianism uh, where almost no one provides. You just sort of take a loaf of bread and start passing it around. There's just all kinds of different ways of, of doing things. Um, as Baptists, one of our marks, theologically, is that we hold to the priesthood of all believers. That is, we believe that there isn't a special sort of caste of religious professionals than everyone else. Is that we are all, in God's grace, able to be priests of God through Jesus. All one in Christ. 
And the way we do things, as we pass out the plates, uh, you will notice whoever is next to you passes you the plate. Whether they're old or young, whether they're rich or poor, male or female, it just doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Because one of the ways that we do things in, dist- in passing out the elements is that we are recognizing the body of Christ was given for the body of Christ. That's all of us. Everyone in Christ is welcome to participate in communion. Every believer in Jesus Christ is invited to come. And so as we pass out the plates, it's one of the things that we're, we're demonstrating. We pass it to each other because we are all equal sharers in Christ in salvation. Men pass to women, young pass to old, it just goes all through. It's diversity and unity. So I asked the deacons, and they, they graciously said it was okay. Uh, I asked the deacons if perhaps this Sunday, uh, instead of the deacons serving, we could have some people who represent sort of the diversity of the body of Christ come and help pass out the elements. So some young, some old, some male, some female, uh, just to demonstrate that Christ has given his body for us as a church. Young, old, male, female, ethnicity doesn't matter. Nothing matters except faith in Jesus Christ. His body and blood unite us together in a powerful and saving way. And this is not becoming a new pattern. Uh, it is not that the deacons are never going to distribute these things again. But just today, in light of this text, to remember our Lord and to celebrate, he's given us a different way, thank God. He's given us something new and special that at the end of Judges you can't even imagine. That type of unity in diversity in Christ. And so I'm going to ask uh, those people who are going to be distributing the elements to come forward at this time. Uh, you can take your spots here at the front. And everyone else, just take a moment to pray uh, individually, and then we'll celebrate communion together.